Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Tony Giles is a blind and partially deaf independent traveler who has visited 130 countries on seven different continents and counting, many as a solo traveler. He's written three books delivered an epic TED Talk, and been featured on major media all over the world, from the BBC to travel and leisure. You might find his story incredibly inspiring. I know I do. But Tony doesn't really see it that way. I don't think they're really going to get how a blind person travels and see the world. Because when you're sighted, in your mind as a sighted person, the worst thing, the worst disability losing your sight. People think, you lose my sight, I can't do anything, can't work anymore. I can't do that. They imagine in their head, how can they cope? How can they do? Whereas I know, it's, it's not that difficult. But because I've never had sight, really. So what I do is normal. And people say to me, oh, you're inspiring and your story is amazing. And I get it, it is. But to me, it's not. It's just what I do. Travel is indeed what Tony does. He is actively working on visiting every country in the world. But it wasn't that easy in the beginning. During our chat, Tony shares a pivotal moment in New Orleans that changed everything for him. I suddenly thought, I'm totally blind, severely deaf, in a strange, unknown, dangerous city. How the hell am I going to find the tram stop? How am I going to even get around? Tony Giles, blind world traveler and author, is our guest today. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. So excited to bring you this one. Been waiting to release it, my conversation with Tony Giles. You can check out his work at TonyTheTraveler.com. That's Traveler with two L's. If you're wondering how this interview took place, it's because Tony wears digital aids. These give him roughly 80% hearing capacity in a one-to-one conversation. We've recorded our chat over Zoom. And during this conversation, he openly shares some of the challenges he faced at an early age, learning how to live with his visual and hearing impairments. And I was fascinated to 
discover how Tony, as a totally blind and partially deaf individual, experiences the world as a traveler, how he engages all of his senses when he travels, how he allows his body to feel the authenticity of a place. A lot of lessons for all travelers here. And Tony's doing all of this world wandering as an independent traveler. A lot of the trips he's done are solo trips. He is working on visiting every country in the world, and he has to rely on the help of strangers. So you'll hear why, surprisingly, he doesn't find that to be a very difficult thing to do. And he's a hilarious guy. I love his sense of humor. And as you'll hear, he didn't set out to be this great inspiration, but just through the way he lives his life, he is. He is, at least to me, and I think you'll, you'll find the same. Gave me a lot to think about, a lot of new perspectives to consider, and also enjoyed hearing his travel advice. Of course, we talked some destination talk when somebody's been to that many places. You want to hear their recommendations, so we get into all of that and much more right now. Please enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Tony Giles. I'll see you on the other side. I'll share one of the moments from this interview that really pumped me up. Might do the same for you. And I'll send you off with a quote for the day. Thanks for listening. And please enjoy my chat with Tony. Tony Giles, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friends. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. A pleasure to have you. I've been meaning to uh, reach out for a while. We finally got in touch and yeah, got in touch through a mutual friend because you guys were, well, you were just at the Extraordinary Travelers Conference in Armenia. Was that your first time in Armenia? Uh, second time in Armenia. Um, I went back in 2010, got some friends invited me to Georgia, so they were working, so I figured I'd head to Armenia. Um, I actually tried to go to Azerbaijan first, but they wouldn't give me, they wouldn't give me a visa. So, oh well. Um, yeah, I wanted to cross by the um, by overland. They wouldn't give me a visa, so I went down to Armenia. Have things gotten more complicated because of Brexit and all that with visas? Um, in some countries, yeah. I've been planning a trip to Africa soon for um, uh, Sao Tome and Principe and then Gambia. So it looks like some of the countries are asking you to get a visa in your own country right, right now rather than on the border. But um, Armenia, I don't need a visa, so that's good straight in well since that's your most recent sort of trip can you tell us a bit about what you did there yeah so um i flew in um so i mean on the 11th of uh, october via um, vienna um and my mum helps me book flights because the website's a bit tricky I, I use a screen reading software on my laptop called jaws and it speaks press a key so i can use the internet with the arrow keys and stuff um but yeah so once in armenia um and one of the organizers booked me a hostel. So um, somebody met me and then they took me to the hostel. And then um, three days of the conference, um, and then Friday the 13th to the 15th, and I was the first speaker. So I was up first. And I, I opened the, my speech with, uh, traveling is like sex. If you talk about it too much, you never do it. <laughs> yeah. so that woke everyone up. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just told stories after that. I tried to try to explain how I see the world through using all my senses of my body rather than my sight uh, or my, um, I'm totally blind. So yeah, I was 
form of a rare eye condition, uh, which meant I couldn't open my eyes for the first three years of my life. And then when I was given dark glasses around the age of three, I could then open my eyes. But I was very light sensitive, so I could see shapes and shadows about the age of 12. And then my eye condition not changed, but my sensitivity to light uh, lessened about the age of sort of 12 or 13. I was totally blind. But I'd, I'd seen shapes and shadows. I had some ideas of what objects looked like. And uh, I understood shade. So when I looked at the balls on the pool table, I could tell. The black ball was the blackest and the red ball was slightly lighter, blue ball was slightly lighter. Had that basic understanding of shape and shades and stuff. Um, so yeah, so I told them about that really and then just explained how I traveled and I, you know, travel. I go to visit a country with different smells, the music, new food, meeting different people. And it's about talking to people and, and learning about their culture. And I sort of say you don't need to be blind to, to do that. Yeah. I- Definitely excited to to get into some of those stories. Was it when you were thirteen? Did you say when you kind of th- it went from sort of the shapes and yeah? So so at the age of three, I could see and sort of sense shapes, and I I could actually sense big black letters on white paper. I could sense the contrast. Um, I don't have any color nerves, but I have my black and white nerves. So like when you go into a cinema, it dim light, so I could sense the contrast. And then as I got older, the prints I was writing got smaller, and then. I just stopped looking. I stopped using my lenses because it was too difficult. Um, and about the age, I don't really remember. But sort of 11, 12, 13. That any, any sensory vision I had is really gone. The only thing I could sort of sense uh, was sort of sunlight when it was very bright. And then I don't really even, I don't really even sense that now. But the optic nerve still actually works because that's not, that's not, that part isn't damaged. So it's a bit complicated. And then I also went deaf when I was five. Um, Slightly deaf in both ears, and again, it's nerve damage, um, and that's got worse over years. But I use digital hearing aids, so one to one, I hear really good. And then in a crowd, it gets more difficult. The challenge for me is because I can't lip read, but I don't have the sight, and I can't sign. So it's the combination. When you're getting into your teen years at that time, it's it's like sort of complicated. Life is sort of confusing and complicated anyway. So how was that time period? emotionally for you when you were thinking about your life going forward? And that was the toughest time, especially if you sort of the age of 14, 15, up to sort of 18, 19. Uh, you know, trying to pick up girls and stuff, not be able to see, not be able to hear. Uh, the idea of, oh, they don't, they don't find me attractive because blah, 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 being blind and deaf. And then, yeah, eventually getting my head around that. And I started drinking when I was 17. Um, I was, yeah, pretty wild by the age of sort of 21, 22. Um, but then I realized through my travels and meeting more and more people, I realized one day, well, these people actually like me for who I am, not because I'm blind or they feel sorry for me. And yeah, once I stopped drinking, then I could sort of analyze stuff that's a 23, 24 by then and sort of realized, yeah, I was an okay person. Being on this journey, as people say. (laughs) Yeah, was it like so much of a problem that you sort of had to kind of quit and... Yeah, it was killing me. I had to quit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Are yeah, you sure. Yeah. So um, in 2001, I went to Australia. And the day I landed in Australia, um, I'd finished university and I had a general medical GP. And um, they discovered I got kidney damage, kidney disease. And um, I didn't think a lot about it. That would be fine. And just drank. And then five months later, I saw a consultant and he said, um, yeah, if you don't get treatment and reduce your drinking, you'll be dead within three years. I thought, 
okay. Uh, so I decided I went to see a close friend and they said, yeah, it, the drinking is affecting our relationship. And that made me think about things a lot. And I thought, oh, just slow down and maybe just two or three beers a day. And I realized I couldn't. If I had three or four, I'd have 10. I realized I had to quit completely. Uh, came off it slowly. And then, yeah, eventually realized yeah, it's better to be clean. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially where you're from, there's such a, a culture around, you know, going to get a pint and, you know, that doesn't help. <laughs> no, you know, my dad, my dad made his home brew, home beer at home when I was seven and I taste it and, you know, and then going to university. Yeah. It's just, I went to bars to listen to music rather than drank when I started. Um, I didn't really like, I didn't really like the taste of beer, but I liked cider and then I discovered whiskey and then it was a whole different ball game. The old laughing lady. Because after I after I stopped drinking and then I travelled, um, it was difficult at first being around people drinking. And this, but I actually saw you know see people absolutely paralytic. And thought, That's what I was like. So, my God, yeah. And I've been sober for twenty years now. Wow! Congratulations, yeah, man. Yeah, better for it. Yeah. I imagine you know in a lot of ways, like the way you described, it, at least it's a kind of a coping mechanism, right? Yeah, I think an escapism to try and blot out the the anger I was feeling and the pain and I lost people from, you know, I lost my dad when I was 16 and my best friend when I was 16. But plus issues around being blind and deaf and, you know, trying to get laid and failing and all that. Yeah. It all hit hit at the same time, really. (laughs) Just life. Yeah. Well, just life, but that's a lot. That's a lot for, for anybody to deal with, man. But it could, it could have been worse. I was very lucky. I went to I went to a school with um I went to a boarding school when I was ten, um, about two hundred three hundred miles from my home, and there were other children there who were visually impaired. But you know, my best friend was in a wheelchair. And when I met him, he could move his hands and drive his own wheelchair. And when he died six years later, he couldn't move anything. Like, later on, once I started, I realized you know so lucky to be able to walk around and scratch my ass or <laughs> just the simple thing, you know. But it's it's time. You just need time. And, once you can mature, then you can you can realize, yeah, I, I feel I'm very lucky. I spent the last 25 years, you know, traveling the world, meeting amazing people, doing amazing things. I understand and appreciate I am very lucky and fortunate to do what I do. But yeah, it has its challenges, and there are times when it's very difficult, and there's times when I have to sort of reset and go home and start again. But yeah, this is what I want to do. People say, oh, isn't, isn't traveling difficult if you're blind, if you can't see? I said, well, yes, but it's only as difficult or, or as easy as, as your mind makes it. Most of it's in the head. Most of it's in the mind. And no, no one's forcing me to go traveling. Um, I do it because I enjoy it and I love the challenge. So, Yeah. I watched your TED Talk, by the way. Incredible. I'm going to link up to it in the show notes because it's literally the best TED Talk I've ever seen. It's so great, so inspiring, hilarious. Uh, some great jokes in there. You talked about that moment in New Orleans when you had the decision. I was wondering if you could just kind of share that moment with people. Because that seems like the pivotal moment for you when you kind of went all in on uh, on yes. travel. That was the first one. And then it was the second one several years later. But yeah, the basic was um, I was studying in the States as part of a, an American studies degree. And uh, got sent to South Carolina. And um, spring break, a week off, all my friends went down to Florida. And I thought, not going to let me drink, take drugs or, you know. I thought, oh, let's go to New Orleans. That's, you know, I'd heard about the blues and the jazz, Bourbon Street. Well, that'd be fun. Uh, so I got friends help me book a flight, book a, a 
hostel. I've been backpacking around the UK for five or six years, hostels. And that. so that, yeah, um, landed in New Orleans, got a taxi to the hostel, no problem. Went up the steps, uh, checked in, and then asked the staff how they get to Bourbon Street, the main you know, party street in New Orleans. They said, bye, you walk down the steps, you turn left, you walk four blocks, find a tram. Oh, okay, no problem. I walked out the hostel, went down the steps, onto the street and just froze. I just, and I was, what, 21 by then? Uh, almost 22, and I just panicked. You know, um, I, I what, 90 Fahrenheit and 98 for humidity, and I just, it wasn't he. I just panicked. I suddenly thought, I'm totally blind, severely deaf, in a strange, unknown, dangerous city. How the hell am I going to find the tram stop? How am I going to even get around? And my whole body was just shaking. I, just, I can't do this. I took a few deep breaths. I said to myself, Tony, this is what you want. This is what you kind of do. You don't want that challenge. Go home. So I took a few more deep breaths, turned left, walked up the street four blocks, asked someone to show me to the tram stop, went down a bourbon street and had a blast. And I don't really remember much about the rest of my week in New Orleans. And that's been my attitude ever since, really. Mm. Well, what was the second? You mentioned that there was a second. Yeah, there was. It was, was a second one. There. So I, um, I traveled around and I, I went back to studying, and then I, I later went to California with a, an Australian girl, and um, later I ended up in Hawaii by myself. It's quite hilarious. And then I, I traveled, and I realized my kidneys were getting worse, um, and um, eventually, luckily, we were able to find a, a donor. Um, so I figured I'd just travel. At that time, I was looking for work or voluntary work. But each time I sort of got an interview, but both my kidneys were getting worse. I thought, oh, I like traveling, but how much longer have I got? And I figured I'd just travel until I was on dialysis, um, artificial kidney function. But in 2008, I was able to have a transplant. Um, December 2008 was successful. Uh, my stepdad gave me a kidney because we were a match. And when I, was in, when I was in hospital, I had a new kidney. And once you have a new kidney, it's like, Putting a new battery in the car, you suddenly got lots of energy. And I just said to myself, let's, let's do this traveling thing for the rest of my life and try and get, try and get to all 193 countries. That's what I've been doing ever since. Really. Unbelievable. You're, you've been to, I mean, at least according to your website, tonythetraveler.com, I'm going to link to all this, but it looks like 150 or 128 of the UN records. That's right, 128 of the UN ones. And then yeah, I had another 20-odd sort of Kosovo is not recognized, Western Sahara, Greenland, some of them part of Denmark, some part of France, yeah, things like that. So, yeah. Well, when did the idea for traveling kind of start for you? Um, well, like I say in my talks, I, I didn't wake up one day like a lot of people, oh, let's go traveling for a year, you know, in between uni and college. Like a gap year thing. That's typical in, in England, right? It's a lot of people do that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I didn't have friends to go with because everyone's doing different things. And, um, but basically, I got in, sort of introduced uh, to sort of traveling, the idea of journeying through my dad's stories. He was in the Merchant Navy in the late 1940s, early 50s, before I was born. And he, I remember him telling his story that crossing Australia from the East Coast to the West Coast by steam train and taking eight days. Well, that sounded interesting. And then also um, traveling up uh, the St. Lawrence River um icebergs floating down the ship's sides and stuff and that sounded adventurous and exciting to me i was seven eight nine ten something like that and then um so that was it and then when i went to boarding school my first 
kind of ambition, my first kind of goal was um, once I had mobility training, which is learning to use a white cane to get about, find objects on the ground and stuff, and then go up and down steps safely and eventually cross roads. My first goal was to try and get home and see my family as much as possible. Very close to my mum. My dad was um, was quite old and was in ill health. So that was the kind of first thing, really. But the thing that really sort of started the traveling abroad and the idea of visiting other countries was um, I got to go to Boston in the US uh, with my school when I was 16. And that was totally different. I mean, I've been to London several times. Um, I've been to a Greek island with my parents, but going to the States was different. People talked differently. They were more direct. Um, the traffic went in different directions. Everything was bigger. You know, I could sense the space around me through my body and then the pavements or the sidewalks, as you call them, were you know, huge compared to the ones in England. And it was just different. It was, and it was an atmosphere. Um, I'd not experienced it. I thought, I want more of this. So I went back. Um, and then it sort of started from then. And then really the, the next kick was, you know, traveling and studying in the States in 2000. And, um, and then from there, I planned a trip to Australia and New Zealand because I, I studied about the Vietnam Wars, the conflict. So I thought I wanted to go to Vietnam. I wanted to be there for the Tet New Year, the Lunar New Year. So I thought, well, I can't sit on my bum for six months. I thought, let's go to Australia and New Zealand because, you know, I'd heard about Australia and read about Australia through my studies and um, listening to sport cricket on the radio. So I knew where the main cities were. And also at my school, we had tactile maps of the continents. So basically it's uh, made of plastic and the oceans were sort of smooth plastic and then the land masses were raised sort of shapes. So I could see the shape of the continent um, and, and the rivers were indented lines and then there'd be a sort of like a big dot with a braille abbreviations next to it to, to mark the main city. So you know, something like New York would be NY or um, San Francisco would be SS, et cetera, Los Angeles, LA. You know, in Australia, Sydney, the SY. So, yeah, and I, yeah, I had a big, a big map of Australia. So I could use my fingers to give me the idea of the shape and work out the main cities. Um, and that's how I planned it. And then, yeah, eventually on that same trip, it was a five-month trip, I was really confident. I could speak to people and travel around and let's go to Vietnam and Thailand. And that was completely different. That was totally new. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. 
This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the experience for you, you know, because you have all uh, your eBooks and the the sort of the ongoing tagline of the books is my way. That's right. Like yeah, Southern it's Africa, the my way my series. Way. Yeah. Yeah. The my way series. Yeah. Can you just describe what you mean? Cause I know in your Ted talk, you said you're engaging all of your senses to discover a place and, and this idea of seeing yeah. the world my way. Can you just describe a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so the idea, the idea behind it was seeing the world my way was, it was, it was actually my mom's idea. I'd been traveling for about half a dozen years and she said, Oh, you should write a book. Um, so my friends could sort of, you know, try and understand what you do. I don't want to write a book. I want to travel. So I eventually <laughs> did. I was just like therapy. I just wrote everything down. It happened through my, my entire life. The stuff I could remember. And then I emailed people the stuff I couldn't remember. Um, and eventually ended up with a huge manuscript, about 200,000 words. All right. Uh, I broke it down and basically came up with this book that looked reasonably good. But I thought, no one's going to publish this. So I shoved it in a drawer. Well, a laptop door. And then um, one of my friends saw um, an article for uh, a new publisher. So I sent the manuscript to them. And I, I had the idea because one of my favorite songs is seeing, um, I did it my way. My way, that's a good idea. And I thought, oh, seeing the world my way, that's, I see it my way through my unique, not seeing it through my eyes. So it was sort of tongue on cheek, tongue on cheek. And then, um, yeah, eventually the publisher said, oh, we like this. It's interesting. You need to work a bit more on it. And, um, 18 months later, we had a book and then had a website. Someone suggested I get a website. And then 2010, it, it came out in mean, print. It did reasonably well, but I still had all this extra material. Like, wow, some of this is still quite good. So eventually came out with a second one, but they didn't want to publish it. So I said, so, and the idea behind it really was just to tell my story and show people that despite being blind and deaf or despite being whatever disabilities you might have physical or mental you can achieve your goals you can live your dreams it might not be traveling around the world doing crazy things you know 10 months a year but it's just about having a go really and if you fail have a go again that was it was you know never never desire to make money because you don't um that was about and then the second one led to a third really so that was the idea and then you know try and describe how I see the world using the sense of smell, my sense of touch, my whole body, trying to describe how I sense space. 
Well, I walk into a room and I can feel the shape of the room through my body, but the air and the energy. And if I'm walking through a forest, the space is quite tight, quite small, like walking through an alleyway. And then suddenly I might enter a field and suddenly the, the space in front of me opens up, the wind picks up and it goes different or it's just it's a bit hard to describe. But yeah, that's how I sense my surroundings. You know, I, I go hiking and oh, it's, surely hiking must be difficult if you're blind. It's easy. Because you know if you're going upwards or downwards by the gradient, you use your feet and your stick to follow the the trail, and you follow the voices of other hikers. I watched the BBC thing you did, and uh, yeah, because one of the things you said when you're walking through the market, you said it feels authentic, and I, I think it's it's fascinating to me these these body feelings you're getting through your travels. I just want to, I want you to share a bit more about some of those body feelings. You're yeah. So in some so I'm, using, I'm using my skin. I'm using my skin to tell the difference in temperature, whether it's, it's hot or humid. I'm, I'm feeling the wind on my face or lack of wind. Uh, I'm feeling the different uh, terrain under my feet when I'm walking. My feet are so sensitive. Uh, my toes, the soles of my feet, even though I'm wearing shoes and socks. Um, you know, I know if I'm walking on, on concrete or gravel or suddenly it's cobbles, um, you know. Um, and it's, co- it's just a combination. There's never one sense. Like most people, when they're, they're using it, they're using it primarily their sight. And that gives them 90% of their information where I'm using my skin, my body, my feet, my hearing, the hearing I've got, my sense of smell. I can smell you know, onions cooking or, or meat frying. or Maybe I'll smell sewage. <laughs> um, and then I'm hearing the hustle and bustle, people shouting in whatever language and people laughing, people, all noise, you know. Um, like if you're walking into a pub and you think, oh, it's very quiet, maybe there's only two people in here. And then you walk into another restaurant and there's all this noise. Like, oh, this is a good place to eat because it's busy. It's just, you know, it means the food's probably good. Just little things like that. And, and Echo as well. I echo up my stick when I'm banging it on the ground. So it gives me a sense I might be, you know, walking near a wall. Um, yeah, I, like I say, I feel the gradients. I know if I'm suddenly walking downhill or uphill because the gradient goes up and down. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned the book kind of being therapy, like getting that 200,000, just getting those 200,000 words down, that first manuscript. In what way was it therapeutic for you? Um, because it allowed me to release all my emotions and to express myself, my fears, my doubts, my anger, my hopes, my dreams in a way that I couldn't do verbally. I couldn't tell my family how I felt about a lot of stuff because they didn't, they just didn't understand. They're not blind and deaf. Um, I could tell my mum to some degree, but I didn't want to tell my mum or my, you know, to, all my stuff. I didn't want her to worry. Um, and you can, it's traveling is good because you can tell strangers a lot of stuff, but it doesn't matter because you'll probably never see them again. So if you offend them, it's not so bad. But telling your family, um, especially when you're different, you feel so different, um, which I did when I was younger, uh, much younger than my brother and sister. Um, and, you know, not spent a lot of time with them were being at boarding school. Um, and I always felt I had to be strong for my others, especially when my dad died. And, which, looking back, it's probably silly now, but at the time, that's how I felt. And, you know, expressing my sex, sexual frustrations and everything else, writing it down, 
And, it, you know, it, it might have never seen the light of the day. I might have never shared it with anyone. And some of the stuff was taken out, obviously. But just getting it down out of my head or wherever it is was refreshing. You know? Were you nervous about sharing it with your family so they could read it and, and get really understand things better? Not really. No, once I'd taken out some of the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if, if I'd have left it as the original uh, rough manuscript, then yes. Um, I took some some stuff that couldn't be published. Yeah. But you got it out. I got it out. With yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it helped. It cleared, it cleared the air. And I was able to move forward. Yeah. And then the other part of it came through traveling. You are trying to visit every... United Nation recognized yeah, nation, and more. Right? yeah and more so because that's a jump between you know okay yeah I want to go experience things and, and travel as much as I can and, and there's that and then there's hey I'm gonna try to go to every country in the world or I am going to every country in the world because I'm confident you're gonna do it so at what point did you kind of go to that next level because that's a whole other level I feel of a commitment um as I say when I was in hospital having my kidney transplant and once I once I'd had the new kidney, I had new lease of life. It's instantly new energy, and um, that's when the every country in the world thing started. Yeah, that's when okay. it challenge of trying to get every country, and the more, um, and then that that evolved again as I started traveling and going to more countries and more difficult countries. Uh, difficult in for anyone. Um, yeah, this is the challenge I love, and then it became about not just traveling for me, but also showing people. And inspiring people through my talks. Yeah. That was, well, that was what I wanted to ask you about next, because that's another element of this, right? Of your journey. It's not just your personal mission. Like you're, you're you know, writing these books, you're doing these talks and, and you've kind of taken on this, this role of, of like really inspiring people, which I, I, I really appreciate and love. It's not something that everybody wants to do. Not, not everybody wants to sort of take that charge. Can you just talk a bit about, that experience like what made yeah. you kind of yeah i didn't i mean i didn't go looking for it my idea i'm i'm very i think i consider myself a very self put selfish person or my mum was say self-driven so. um but then it sort of kind of evolved into it really um you know i was writing and then people asked me for interviews and then someone asked me to do a, a talk uh a blind a blind organization or something called sense which is a charity for deaf blind children and then someone else that's me to do another talk and then as so eventually got to a stage and someone asked me to do a tedx i thought wow what's that tedx and i sort of researched it and then you're going to talk in front of a thousand people well like, oh, that sounds good um, but yeah and it sort of slowly evolved and i'm still slightly uncomfortable about doing it not so much now because i thought at the time but this, um it's <laughs> Especially in front of visually impaired audiences, because I thought you don't want to sort of you don't want to tell give the information because what I do is quite extreme. I thought would that scare people rather than inspire them. And then, and the other thing I worried about talking in front of sighted audiences was um, I don't think they're really going to get this. I don't think they're really going to get how a blind person travels and see the world because. When you're sighted, in your mind as a sighted person, the worst thing, you, the worst disability 
losing your sight. People think, you lose my sight, I can't do anything. I can't work anymore. I can't do that. They imagine in their head, how can they cope? How can they do? Whereas I know, it's, it's not that difficult. But because I've never had sight, really. So what I do is normal. People say to me, oh, you're inspiring. Your story is amazing. And I get it. It is. But to me, it's not. It's just what I do. So, yeah, I, I don't worry about it now. But I still wonder if people really understand it because they're coming from a sighted angle and trying to imagine. So, I don't know. But I like it. So. And the other thing that surprised me is that I knew um, talking to blind people and other disabled people, they would be inspired to have a go or at least do that. But it really surprised me that sighted people came up to me and said, you really inspired me. You really, um, you know, you really showed me that I couldn't have a go. And that surprised me. Well, you've got nothing wrong with me. But then I realized a lot of it's mental. A lot of it's about taking that first step and the fear of getting out your front door and doing something different, getting out your comfort zone, which I do every day. That really surprised me. It was interesting. Just the way it organically happened for you. Yeah, like you said, you didn't set out. It's just kind of, it's kind of started happening and going in this direction and it's inspiring people. So, hey, man, let's roll with this. You know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned the the sort of the fear is a thing that can hold people back from traveling or, or whatever things in life. You know, there's a lot of this, of course, a big element of mindset type of stuff, right? And I guess one of the the fears may be, you know, this idea that, Hey, I'm going to go to this country and maybe it's represented in the media in a certain way. And you feel like, you know, you might get robbed. People might be out to get you. And maybe there's some element of like being afraid to trust strangers. And this can happen like to any traveler, right? No matter how seasoned you get to a place and you're like, you know, you have to decide like kind of who you're going to trust, who you're not. You know, is this person going to scam me? Is this person like being authentic and wanting me to, to take me here and show me this thing? I mean, if you've traveled long enough, everybody's been scammed at some point, I feel. You really have like a next level, I feel, of of having to put your trust in into people to kind of take you places, show you. Can you just talk about that experience? Because that is different. This is what's so interesting. Because people always imagine, oh, if you're blind, you're passionate, you're traveling. That must be scary. That must be dangerous. So you're not vulnerable. But it's actually the other way around, at least in my head. I'm less vulnerable in some ways because I've had to trust people all my life. Um, I've had trust, trust people from a very young age to help me cross the road, to um, give me good directions, um, to not rob me. Um, so this is where being blind has an advantage because um, I've learned those skills to trust uh, people, to listen to what they say, the way they say things, the way they react to meeting a blind person. Um, do they panic? Do they say patronizing things because they don't, um, don't know how to communicate to a blind person? Are they relaxed and natural? Um, and I've learned over 30, 35 years of, you know, making mistakes and getting it wrong. And I've learned how to work out who I can trust by you know, listening to them and sensing their energy and stuff. So I think that's why I, I have an advantage. Um, um, and I have less choice when I'm traveling. I have to have help. I can't get around not having help to use a cash machine or to um, get on a bus if I want to go from A to B. So it's slightly easier for me. And I, I'm also born or have, my mum's very positive and I'm very positive. And 
and maybe naively, but I, I look at people and I look at the world as in a positive aspect. I I think that most people just want to put food on the table for their family, a roof over the house, and, and not much more. And sure, you're going to get the odd asshole who wants to take advantage of you, or someone who's so poor they will rob you because they need to sell it just to get food. But I think, you know, 95% of the population of the world are, like I say, just want an easy, simple life. Well, that's how I look at people. I mean, that allows me to trust people a little easier. And also, people trust me, uh, particularly. Um, I think women trust me more because I, they sense I'm not looking at them as a sexual object. I don't see them. Um, so therefore, they, they tend to relax around me and open up more. Yeah. And of course, the other great thing about being blind is I'm not visually racist. So I interact with people from different cultures in a, a, an easier way, maybe. Can, can you share some of your most memorable interactions with locals, just as a traveler? You know, some of the experiences you've had around the world meeting people. Um, there's like a montage of people going through your brain right now, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just just like... one. I, you know, I stayed in Armenia recently and um, I met this lady. Uh, she's a tour guide and her name's Mick. And um, she was my tour guide and we did several tours together. And, and then she arranged for me uh, accommodation, helped me find accommodation in different parts of Armenia up in the north. And I went to a city called Diligent and I stayed in this hostel called Ojak. O J A K H, and um, and uh, one of the ladies there could speak English, and her mother could speak a little bit. But they, they were so nice. They were so kind to me. They like um, they like, reduced the price of the the dorm, and and um, they um, they reduced the breakfast slightly, and then they gave me dinner for free. It was so kind. Um, and and the daughter was talking to me and just asking me about my travels and my website and just things like that, little things really, and um. And then I met, I met an Indian guy who was in the hostel and um, we were meant to get a bus to go back to Yerevan and um, the bus was full and um, 11 o'clock in the morning, it was the only bus going back to Yerevan and to get a taxi would have cost me 10,000 uh, of the local money, which is probably about uh, $25. Um, so we, he said, I suggested hitchhiking, so this Indian guy helped me, helped me find a car. And then... Um, I offered the guy, the local guy, he took me to the next bus station and I offered him a bit of money and he just said no. And you know, it's that, people like that. And, um, you know, uh, I met another guy called, um, it, was in, it was in Zambia and I couch surfed with him. Like, he has a couch surfing website where you can stay with people. And I stayed with him for a few days and then offered him some money for milk and stuff. I said, no, no, no. And then I, I got stuck because I was meant to go from Zambia to uh, Namibia and then the borders closed because of COVID. So I called him and I was like, I need to come back for a couple of days. And he said, you just yeah, stay as long as you want. Mm. But, you know, things like that are fantastic. Yeah, so much kindness out there on the road. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's sort of, sort of hard traveling around the world for the last 20 years. What has uh, solo travel taught you about yourself? Uh, well, so uh, mostly how I've travelled um, since I started, really. Um, you know, um, travelling by myself, and for me, it's I love it because it allows me the freedom 
to go anywhere I want when I want. I don't have to compromise like when I travel with my girlfriend. We do it differently. She's also blind and she's a lot smaller, a bit delicate. So we have to, you know, compromise and, oh, she might not want to get up at seven in the morning and go hiking. But when I'm by myself, I can, you know, I can make those decisions or not. Um, and also it gives me the, um, I don't have to book everything. I don't have to plan a trip as much. Um, when I went to Australia the first time, I booked my first hostel online, just started to use the internet. And then I got to Australia and I you know, got a taxi to my first hostel. And I just asked the hostel staff, what should I do? How can I book tours? How, oh, I'm going to this city. And you book the next hostel. And they just, it was so easy traveling around Australia because I could speak the language. The infrastructure, and they just booked every hostel for me. And then, you know, then I, now I've gone to Africa and, and Asia. Um, you know, and I, I still travel by word of mouth, even though I've got the internet. And a lot of people use smartphones and stuff. I don't. I just carry a basic little phone with tactile buttons. I can call each couch surfer. I take my laptop. But um, that's how I go with it. And it just, and also, when you travel with someone, especially if you travel with someone with sight, which I've done a couple of times during my trips, and you, you're asking people, oh, how do we get to this place or um, how much is it? They look at the sighted person because someone's got to do ask, and uh, you know, rather than so I'm not getting the interaction that I would be when I'm traveling on my own. When I'm traveling on my own, I've got to talk to them and they've got to talk to me. So I enjoy it more. But it's not to say I don't like people and I don't like traveling with people, but I'm more one-to-one, um, you know, because I, when, I, when I got invited to do this conference in Armenia, the one thing I worried about, oh, God, there's going to be 40, 50 people. I'm really going to struggle to socialize. I don't really like groups. I've done a couple of uh, trips with groups, and it's not for me. Uh, fortunately, yeah, luckily, it was really good. The conference people uh, took the time to speak to me into my ear one-to-one, so it was, uh, that was good. I guess they experienced travelers, which helped. But. I do prefer solo traveling because it's it's the ultimate freedom for me. It's awesome. It's a great way to travel. You could argue that, you know, you mentioned kind of solo travel. Like, it's not that I don't like people, but like, you could almost argue you solo travel because you do like people, right? Yes, like, you get yes, to meet yeah, more people. Because <laughs> when you're traveling with somebody else, you're more with, you're more present with them, which of course makes sense. You're on a trip together, but yeah, you're, you're more. Yeah, you cut yourself off more. You're chatting with your partner. Yeah, you don't interact as much. Um, and people say to me, "Oh, don't don't you get lonely?" I say, "How do you get lonely? There's seven billion people to meet." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you travel with your girlfriend, are you like, "All right, you know, I have to mentally prepare myself for this now because I'm used to be able to do whatever I want all the time." <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, you just have to be more patient. Eh? And the good. The good thing about being in a relationship is you do become more patient. You become less selfish, um, which is a good thing. Where did you guys meet? Uh, we met through the internet. Uh, a Greek journalist, because she's Greek, she lives in Greek. A Greek journalist did an article about me back in 20, uh, 2008, and she found it online. And she liked the way I described things from an on-site person point of view. Like described the, you know, touching a, a church and the different layers of stone and different textures. And, and stuff and walking through cobbles and, and narrow streets and so she emailed me and I went, oh nice girl I emailed back and I think she just emailed me to sort of improve her English really to start with and then 
I had my kidney transplant. 2009, went to Turkey for a month. I'd never been. Oh, I've been to Turkey to go to Greece because of history. And I said, oh, I'm coming to Greece. So we met up. And I found this little restaurant near the hostel I was staying. And she wouldn't let me pay. I remember that. She refused to let me pay for dinner. Oh, this is good. And then we just talked and we met up again. And then, yeah, 2010, I came back from a trip to the States and Canada. And we met up more. I went back to Greece to meet her. Just went from there slowly, and we've been together maybe 13 years next month. Wow. Well, I mean, but the first time you met up, that must have been, it must have been a bit nervous, man. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd never had a girlfriend. I mean, I'd, you know, been with people, but I'd never had a, uh, I've been lasted more than four days or something. So, yeah, I suppose it was nervous. Uh, I mean, we chatted through email, so we had something. It wasn't like a blind, well, <laughs> it was a blind date, but. <laughs> but um yeah so we just talked really and you know talked about greece and each other and then we it happened slowly i met her again i got invited to her house for a meal and we sat we sort of found over two weeks um me on and off that we like the same music and yeah a few other things and yeah just went from there and we met again and then she came to england and met my parents Six months after that, and I met a mom, and yeah. uh, then yeah. it then it's going next level when you start meeting the parents. You well, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I never, I never really thought much about it. To start with, and, you know, just grew naturally, I suppose. You know, things we didn't like, and we discovered more. Yeah, and I showed I had to slow down when I'm traveling with her because she didn't walk at my pace and not not do the main mistakes like. You know, Oh, I met some friends one night. The last night we were together as we were going home, and I thought, oh, let's meet some friends. And she just wanted to spend the night with me, the evening. With her. I was like, you just learn as you go, don't you? Really? Oh. Um, especially when you can't see the facial reactions. So you've got to work it all out by the silences or the, uh, yeah, I don't love you or whatever. Uh, it's good fun. It's, yeah, I guess you could feel those energy shifts in conversation. Yeah, right? yeah. It's learning to read them. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? 
Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. What are some cultures outside of your home country that you identify with, that you kind of vibe with when you get when you get there? Um, well, I really, I really like the Latin culture. I went to South America. Um, one of my friends, uh, I met at uni doing my master's. In 2002, she's been spent a year in Ecuador. That's how she's described it more. And that sounds fun. So I um I I went away for four or five months in South America and heard a bit about it and about football and stuff and a lot else about the Amazon. I went to Brazil. And it was crazy. I landed in Rio de Janeiro. And it was raining, and it was you know ninety percent Fahrenheit. Ninety, and it was. So people took me out samba-dancing and we're pissed out the country. <laughs> I'd only been there four hours. And we go samba-dancing all night. And I, I, like when you go to a bar in the States or in Europe, you know, it goes around 11. We turned up this bar at like 11.30 and there was nothing. It was closed. It didn't open until midnight. And they fight till five in the morning. I and mean, that was different. And then, yeah, I found the people in South America amazing. Very sense, sensory, very touchy-feely, very emotional, very open. Um, passionate. Yeah, passionate. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, me too. They spoke and, and people would just come up to me and touch my hand and they didn't speak much English, Spanish. Uh, I remember sitting in a, in a bus station in uh, Venezuela, went for a bus that was, was late. And this guy just put me on his little stool next to his cafe, cafe shop and, but these people just kept coming up and asking me if I was all right in Spanish and touching my hand. And someone bought me a coffee and just put it in my hand. And, oh, you know, I wish I could have learned more Spanish. I could have, um, you know, communicated more on a on a deeper level. But yeah, and I went back. I went back to Venezuela twice. Went back to Argentina and Chile two times. I've been all over South America. It's a different atmosphere. It's a different vibe. And, and the same with Africa. Africa is my favorite continent. And the first time I went to Africa was 2004. I flew into South Africa with no real idea where I was going. I had a rough idea to try and get from South Africa to Egypt in four months. <laughs> no chance. I was still in Malawi. <laughs> <Four months. laughs> but I, didn't, I didn't know how big the continent was. I didn't know how complicated it was. And, and you, know, um, you asked for a taxi in Zambia. He's oh, coming now, now. And you think, oh, five minutes. And an hour later, you still wait for this taxi, and I learned very quickly Africa is just so different. And I loved it, and I went back. And the chaos and the fact everything breaks down. I was on a I was on a minibus in Zimbabwe, I think. And it was twenty five seat minibus. There were forty people on it. Um, no windows, no glass. It's bouncing along, dust, the heat, music's going boom, boom, boom. There's live chickens on this bus and luggage. And suddenly, smell of fire. What? The engine's on fire. We stopped the minibus. Everyone piled out. Well, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, you think, oh, in, in America or Europe, get a new bus with you, wait, a bus would come up. No, no. They cool the engine off. 
to make sure it's all right, and we all get back on. And go. <laughs> oh gosh, this is an eight-hour journey. Yeah, it's just uh, West Africa. Even it's poor. It's so poor, and but people are so generous. I went to villages, and there's no. It's so safe. The villages. No, no one wanted to take your, your steal your laptop or your phone. They, they were just happy to see you. And there's people in the villages understand me more than people in the city because. Members of their family were disabled, one leg or blind. I met a blind boy in Malawi, and he he, he was got he became blind from malaria. Um, and yet he went to school and he was learning braille, and he wanted to teach other blind children braille. And that was remarkable, and he was probably happier than me because all his friends in his villages looked after him and helped him get around. Um, and he was probably more happy than I was at the time. Interesting. And the more simple things I learned, the more simple things are, the more happier people seem to me. I went to the uh, the mountain country of Lesotho, which is basically dry mountains surrounded by South Africa. And there's kids run around in the dirt naked. And there's one school, there's one building, a classroom, 40 kids in it. And when we all turned up, getting pencils and balloons, they just couldn't believe it. They were amazing. Never seen a balloon, little balloon go up before. And I just thought, this is simple. And then I went on this pony trek for two days and we're up in the village, stone village, stone huts, and there's mountain. The guy said to me, Tony, the women have got up this morning at 6 a.m. They walked down the valley uh, to two, two and a half miles. I want one and a half mile. They collect water in buckets. They bring it back on their heads. They can't drop any water because that's all they've got to feed the, the village each day. And I thought, we don't know how lucky we are. We just turn a tap on and water. We don't think about it. And that really, that really opened my eyes uh, in many ways. Life can be simple, and a more simple life is a happy it would probably be. Yeah. You home base in England, right? You're not nomadic, or you, you? No, I'm not. I'm not nomad. Um, I'd like to be, um, but because of my medical situation, I had to get checks every three months and medication every three months. So that my immune systems. Um, Reduce so I don't reject the kidney. And also having a partner, I mean, I couldn't be nomadic anyway. Yeah. So you're usually, at least within every three months, you you head back. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll do a trip for a couple of weeks or a month. Um, and I go to Africa, I'll do a three-month trip. Because I like to land in a continent and do try and do two or three countries at once. And it's the cheapest way to do it. And then I'll come home and I'll, I'll see my girlfriend. I'll go to Greece or she'll come here and... I plan the next trip. We'll plan a trip together. Uh, travel for a couple of weeks. We went to Australia in September for three weeks. Uh, I got invited to a travel conference for blind travellers. We spoke there near Sydney. And then we, we spent a couple of weeks travelling around Oz. Um, yeah, that's how I kind of do it. What are some of the countries you have left to visit that are kind of maybe a bit intimidating or complicated or just kind of like, oh, um, I'm going to save that one for the end. <laughs> yeah, I the only countries that are slightly intimidating but sort of troubling is Equatorial Guinea just because of the corruption. It's so corrupt, apparently. Uh, and getting visas is quite complicated for that one, I think. Um, a lot of it means flying into each country, which I don't really like doing. I prefer sort of overlanding and doing it that way and all the hassle of that. Um, India is going to be a big challenge just because the amount of people more than anything. I went to Pakistan earlier this year, and that was amazing. Um, and everyone just sort of treated me like family. They took me in and helped me go where I wanted to go. 
I imagine India would be the same, it's just on a greater scale. Um, the idea of trying to cross the road in India is uh, <laughs> probably that, terrifying. Yeah, not terrifying, just <laughs> laughable. I did it in Vietnam, and it was like 5,000 cyclists going past the one. So you just move with, the, move with the bicycles, and the gap naturally opens up, apparently. But, uh, you know, what you can't see, you don't worry about so much. Um, so, yeah, I have an advantage. Like, people say, well, how do you, how do you cope walking into an airport? And it's chaos. Well, I don't see it. Yeah, I can hear it. I know it's there. Um, but I don't see it. It's not the same impact. And then I, I get special assistance. So I find someone take me to the check-in desk or whatever, the airline. And then from there, they'll guide me through. They, you know, we jump the queues, we go through bits, and then you know, take me through security to the gate and put me on the plane, and someone meets me at the other end. So it's it's very easy in that respect. Um, staff on the plane look after me. And, um, one lady on the on an airplane once. I was going to the Middle East on the way to the Philippines, and someone told the the, the air said, "Oh, he's, he's blind and deaf." And she said, "Well, how do I how do I how do I communicate?" And I said, well, "Try speaking." So, um, yeah, um, Syria, that would be a guided tour, I guess. I went to Libya last year, and that was fantastic. Um, I was meant to go to Bhutan in, two, uh, in 2020. Uh, I was about to set off a guided tour, and my guy said, don't come because you'll be in quarantine for two weeks. A lot of it's just planning. It's where yeah, the site? logistics, kind of the Yeah, visas, logistics. And, yeah. And, and if you're sighted, you just... You know, really cut the websites, pick a guidebook up, and you go. If you're blind, you need to plan it more. And like I say, I put my first accommodation in each country, and I, I need to research that what attractions are available because I can't flick through a guidebook once in there. I need to find out the currency and can I get from the airport to my accommodation by taxi or public transport and all this stuff. And then, you know, um, just I just research more. That's it. I take my laptop with me. Um, but I, I, I still... It's the last people on the way because when you're in Africa or Asia, sometimes you don't have any electricity or internet for three days. So I was sitting in the Gambia one night uh, having a meal with a bunch of other guests, and they said, suddenly the lights have gone out. I said, and I carried on eating. And they went to find the candles. Do you get reverse culture shock when you come home? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Do you? In I what way? Close, I, I go home and close the door for. And, <laughs> do you? Uh, I don't want to meet anyone. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. Never. I never really completely unpack. Um, no. Washing it, but it's half the stuff stays in the backpack. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's bizarre. Oh, especially landing in London and that everyone's miserable. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Wait, I mean, isn't that just? It's like charming, miserable, though, right? Isn't yes, that kind yeah. Of yeah. Sort of, just, yeah. English being, just English being English, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've learned a lot more about like the culture in England, I guess, and that sort of side of it, because I think just being in Europe and being closer and being exposed to more British TV shows and, and things like that and humor and everything, and it's, I've come to really appreciate it, actually. Yeah, and then you hear the news, you put the news on, oh, right, oh, we, oh, we've got a new prime minister again, yeah. <laughs> uh, prime minister in like six months or whatever it is uh, you know, you've gone the shot the biggest thing at the moment is, you know is you go away for two weeks and you buy milk and the price has gone up it's just gone up another 20p again yesterday like, my god that's that's the big thing that you notice at the moment um, you know the price of the petrol pumps and that's that's the main thing you're going to notice now. they must be going for one you know, quiet gentle almost 
miserable in Norway. Um, <laughs> and always come across miserable when you first meet them. You know, <laughs> is, like, that, is that the energy in Norway? <laughs> yeah. They just keep themselves to themselves. They're very... They do. You know, maybe Oslo apart, but yeah, once you go, it's just very reserved. But then you sort of realize it's, it's them being them. They're not being rude. You know, but for you, that you know, you're quiet Norway, and then you go to America, and you're bombarded by everything. You know, especially if you land in New York or LA, is I think you're bombarded by advertising everywhere and lights and noisy Americans who don't, you know, ask you stupid questions. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Like what? I got to hear. <laughs> um, how did you get here? Like that uh, airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, though, would you say I, my home country, America, have they been? Have we been all right? We've been all right to travel through. Oh yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. When I was young and naive and didn't really realize you were. <laughs> no, most people are very kind and very friendly. It's just OTT at times. It's just over the top. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to describe it. I'd say. Yeah, and it's very sensational. Yeah, it can be. It's a shock at first. When I was studying there, living in England, you've got one choice of bread or two, you know, and two, three types of cheese. You go to the States for the first time, and I'm walking in the supermarket with my friend. I want to get some bread and, and cheese and some ham. I, go, what bread? I get brown bread. Tony, you got about 10 different types of brown bread and at 20 different types of cheese. And he's just like, can I go home? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you get 20 different choices as a man. Oh, that's a struggle. It's funny. Uh, I'm actually reading this book called The Paradox of Choice Why oh, More is Less. Have you read that? read that? No, I got to read that. Is it? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, you know, one of the main premises, I mean, they're using science to back it up and everything like that. But, but the, the core concept is that the more choices we have, the more kind of miserable we are as, that's as right. humans. So right. I was trying to say earlier, yeah, less choices. That's kind of the idea. Mm. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's what young people struggle with today. They got too many choices. When my parents were growing up, they didn't have the choices. When they they saved money because they had to, you know, um, they couldn't put the heating on all the time. The toilets are outside. I was in Armenia and it was freezing. The outside toilet. Even my mum said, "How did you cope back in the fifties outside toilet?" You know, they were tougher then. It's for choice today. I actually hadn't thought about this in regards to pursuing the every country goal, but perhaps, you know, the because there's so much to see in the world, so you could think, oh, well, this is overwhelming. There's so many choices. But maybe committing to going to every country in the world, perhaps because you're you're sort of now you're you're like you got a mission, right? Yeah. Maybe that takes goal. away from the overwhelming yes. kind of yeah, in some ways. I don't know. How do you choose which country to go next? Well, so, well you just you just do. You find the one that sounds most interesting, and you know, and not every country is interesting. By the way, I mean, there's not a lot to do and see in Liechtenstein, for instance. It really isn't. I mean, unless you go mountain climbing, there's not a lot to get excited about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, where else? Um, Burkina Faso is. Some of it's but it's not you're not gonna be clubbing and partying away every night in Burkina Faso. Mm. Yeah. If we're coming to England, where should where should we go? What should we do? Going to England? Yeah. Um 
Well, you can spend a month in London and never be bored. I mean, and you can do London cheaply. That's the thing that people moan about. Oh, England's expensive. In London, you can do it cheaply. But the parks are free. So in April, May, June, the parks are lovely. Um, uh, you can go to most of the museums that are free. Um, the, the British museums really into it. Got a fantastic audio guide. Um, tells you about all the, all the artifacts that British have stolen from other countries over the last 300 years. <laughs> in, in, in Greece and I think they've started to return some of those actually. Uh, one maybe. Or two, yeah, the lesser sort of, yeah. I think Which couple, museum is that? A bit of British Museum. Yeah, okay. Central London. And then you've got the War Museum, of course. This is, you know, World War One, World War Two. That's fascinating for people like me. I'm really interested in war history, quote unquote. And what else? The Science Museum. You've got the Victorian Albert Museum, which is all kinds of bits and bits and bobs, transport museum, and they're all free to go to. Um, um, you spend hours in each one. Um, British Library, and then you got things you can go climb the monument, monument, and you've got the famous churches to visit, famous cathedrals like St Paul's, or again, you've got probably the best audio guide I've ever used. Uh, St Paul's Cathedral, Central London, and then there's also Westminster Abbey. So all the kings and queens are buried in Westminster Abbey, and um, all the sort of military personnel are sort of buried in St Paul's. Uh, the two most important cathedrals in in in, in London. Ah, there's, there's so much. And then of course you could do day trips to Brighton, which has got a pebbly beach, and there's a lot of hippies living in Brighton. You get a tattoo or your belly button pierced. Or you could go to Reading for the day, Legoland, or you could go to Windsor. They're all sort of like a 30, 40 hour trip from London. Or you can go to Oxford from London, where the ancient university is. Uh, you can go down to Dover, the cliffs, uh, to Canterbury Cathedral. There's so much to do in London and around, and Cambridge as well. You know, you can go have a place in England like uh, Bath, the historic Roman baths. You can get a tour around that. You go to Bristol. The history of the railway and the docks, and uh, there's a big museum there called the M Shed, all about the history of the docks. And uh, you, you go to Birmingham and find out about the Industrial Revolution. Uh, there's so much Liverpool for the Beatles, of course. And uh, you can come down to my way it's into Devon, the county of Devon and Cornwall. There's lovely beaches and lots of um, nature, lots of walking, lots of very, very big, steep hills. And then you go to Scotland, and that's oh, beautiful. There's just so much in this little island. I'm actually discovering more and more about the UK now than I ever did when I was young. Yeah. Well, doesn't doesn't traveling kind of make you appreciate things back at home a bit more? I feel. I think so. Yeah, yeah. You know, people say, people say "Oh, what do you miss about England?" And I think, "Oh, I miss listening to the radio." I had this um, this one radio station I listen to called um, BBC Five Live, and I can get uh, listen to the sport, the football. Or soccer, as you call it in the states, and cricket in the summer, and the news as well. And I missed that when I'm traveling you know, two or three months. I miss sausages. There's nothing, no one can get a sausage like the English. Uh, and I miss my small little beach. Uh, well, if you want to hear a great sausage joke, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, again, you have to watch the TED Talk because it's very funny. Um, yeah. No, I, the last time I went to London, I didn't realize like so at the British library, for example, the things you can see for free just in the library, you're like, yes. Oh my gosh. There's like, they got the Magna Carta here. You see like something that Shakespeare wrote. It's, it's, yeah. 
insane. Nice. It, uh, it's so inspiring. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you go see a copy of the Magna Carta, which is the basic, it's the founding block of um, democracy. Yeah. So, there's so much. Like going to the States, and especially if you're blind, it's, it's, you know, you got to touch the Liberty Bell because we can't see it. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. See, I'm took, from Philadelphia. That's where I grew yeah, up, so, the Philadelphia yeah, yeah. area. So that the big, that's cool. The, the big crack. Did I, you touch I, the crack? I touched the crack. I touched the really? crack. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. I told my girlfriend not to ring it though. She best to, she would play with the knocker. <laughs> don't ring this bell. Yeah, don't ring this bell. <laughs> don't crack it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a revolution. <laughs> yeah, and stuff like that. Do you have certain um, experiences that you really enjoy through touch? Yeah. So when, I, when I'm planning a, a trip, well, myself as well, but when, especially when I'm traveling, planning a trip for me and my girlfriend, uh, uh, look, we go to cities, we try and find free walking tours so we can hear the information, listen to the guy and the history. But we're not distracted by the visual art architecture. I also try and find fountains we can listen to and statues we can touch. Like when we went to Dublin, and a lot of statues of famous people we could touch. We touched one of James Joyce, the writer, and he's a little guy stood on a, a block of stone. And we can feel him more and feel his face and his hair and with our fingers and get a real picture of what he kind of looked like through our fingers. Hmm. Whereas that's fantastic. Um, yeah, so things like that. Um, can you think about a fountain you've listened to that you really kind of struck you or inspired you in some way? Um, I, I really love the fountain in Alexanderplatz in Ber Berlin. It's the eastern side of Berlin. And it's uh, it's lovely sound. It's also got these four semi-naked women sat around it with fish and uh, baskets of uh, grapes. And you could just play with them for hours. You can really feel them all. Um, you know, you feel the detail of the of the grapes and the, the fish, uh, the whole shape of the fish. And, as you're walking around it, and again, you've got the water. Um, and I also like waterfalls. I mean, I love the best waterfall I've ever been to is Iguazu Falls on the Argentine-Brazil border. And the reason you can get so close to it, you walk up these metal ramps and you're right on top of it. And the absolute crescendo, this volume of water just drops over the cliffs. And then you're feeling the spray in your face. And yeah, there's this, I think that's the best waterfall I've been to. I've been to Niagara at the time. So you get behind the curtain and stuff. Um, Angel, well, Angel Falls is amazing for its hike. But it's a bit disappointing in some ways because you don't get that close to it. Um, highest waterfall in the world. Um, but yeah. Um, um, yeah, incredible. You've, you've been a few places, man. A few. <laughs> yeah, a few. Maybe we can leave it at this. What is your best one or two pieces of travel advice? Decide where you want to go. Um, do your research. Planning is the key, particularly if you're disabled. Um, but even if you're not, planning is the key. Um, I always try to have a backup plan. So when I go, particularly when I go to a country that where English isn't the first language or even the second language, like Russia, I really have to plan it. Um, I booked all my train tickets in advance because I knew someone in, uh, in no one in the train station would speak English. But once we had our, our tickets, we could just show someone and they could read the Russian. Just put us on the train. Um, yeah, that's the main research plan uh, and have fun. But that's what it's about at the end of the day. There's a lot of work goes into traveling, but it should be about having fun. You're doing it because you want to, hopefully. 
Well, I had fun today, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us and to share you know how you see the world your way and you know the advice you've given and, and some of the destination stuff. I was just I really enjoyed the conversation, man. We're gonna link up to all this stuff. Let's do it in person sometime. I don't know. It doesn't sound like you have the best impression of Norway. I don't know if you'll be back here anytime soon, but yeah, yeah. I like it. I like I like Bergen. <laughs> I like Bergen. I really like Bergen. Um, you like Bergen? I mean, you know, hey, I I love coming to England. So yeah, next time I get oh, over if there. You, if I if, get if you're room. ever in the UK, let me know if I'm here. Yeah. Me up, show, show me some spots and appreciate your time. And thanks again. There you have it. Thank you once again to Tony Giles for stopping by the show. Of course, you can check out any of the links in the show notes. TonyTheTraveler.com is his website. Excited to stay in touch with him and keep following along on his adventures. Would love your thoughts on this interview or the show in general. If you ever want to get in touch, you can always reach me via email or drop me a voicemail. I'll leave a link in all the show notes. And if you haven't signed up over at ZeroToTravel.com yet, you can sign up for the newsletter there. It's free. Send one out every week now and really enjoying getting the newsletter out to all of you. So stay in touch off the podcast. Would love for you to take a moment and sign up over there if you haven't done so. One quick thing before I leave you with a quote and send you off. I mentioned at the top, something that pumped me up that Tony said, he was talking about travel and he just said, if you don't want a challenge, then go home and just like love that tough love sometimes, you know? So next time you're out on the road and you're facing some challenges, you can hear Tony's voice saying, well, if you don't want a challenge, then go home. Maybe that'll uh, empower us to face that challenge and overcome it. Just pump me up. Anyway, also one of the things that stuck with me is just that idea of moving through the world and utilizing all of your senses. So if you want a bit of a task or something to try out today, get out and engage all of your senses and see where that takes you. Now I'm going to leave you with a quote from Helen Keller who said, one can never consent to creep when one feels an impulse to soar. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.